Many would suggest that Aristotle, student of Plato, instructor to Alexander the Great, actually became the first person to establish the groundwork or foundation for what we today call scientific law. Now to find, I think we know this scientific law encompasses empirical conclusions about the world we live in. So we're famous, or we're familiar, for example, with Newton's law of gravity. What goes up, it must come down. That's scientific law. We learned that as kids in school. Uh, if we were in the field of thermodynamics, we've learned about entropy, right? That matter cannot be created or destroyed. Um, then there's one of the most famous laws of all. It's attributed to Albert Einstein in 1905. The equation, of course, is E equals mc squared, which is to say that energy is equal to matter times the speed of light squared, just for fun. Try, just try explaining that to a classroom of middle school students. So, so what I'm saying is that going back to the early Greeks, we've learned something about our world. It's not chaotic. It's not random. There's an order to it, so much so that we're able to assert that certain observable laws seem to remain constant and predictable. But what about the spiritual realm? You know, last week we met Daniel at a significant crossroads in history. We're in Babylon. It's 539 B.C. Remember with me that Cyrus and the armies of the Medo-Persian Empire, they've defeated Babylon, and now a transition of power is taking place. So remember, it's at this point that Daniel actually comes back into the picture, and, and that should be surprising. Remember this with me. Daniel is an 80-year-old retired former advisor to the kings of Babylon. What, what in the world? Does a new Persian ruler want with Daniel as he begins to put into place his new government? How does Daniel even hit the radar? Last week we talked about this. We said, you know what, Daniel may be retired. He may be old, 80 years old. Uh, in those days, 80 was old. But one thing he's not, he's not forgotten. You know why? He's got a reputation that's very widely known throughout the kingdom. And it's built around one thing, namely the Spirit of God. You discover this. When you read the narrative of Daniel, you discover that every king who ever worked with him discovered that he was not like other spiritual advisors. He didn't try to impress kings. He didn't try to cover his skin by telling kings what they wanted to hear. In fact, no, there, there's times when what he had to say to the king was hard to hear. So what made him different? Every king that worked with him recognized, you know what? There's something inside of him. What they're recognizing is the Holy Spirit of God. It's what the Persian king observed as he desires to make Daniel not just, not just a chief ruler in what will become Persia, but he actually wants to make him the chief ruler over all the rulers that will serve him and this new kingdom, uh, which is where, and I'm just going to call it this, spiritual law, not natural law, not scientific law, but spiritual law comes in. So I'm going to ask the question again. We know there's natural and scientific laws at work in the world we live in. We know that. But aren't there spiritual laws at work as well? Aren't there identifiable spiritual truths that are observable throughout time? And of course, the answer is absolutely yes. In fact, I think we're running into one here at this juncture in history. Here, here's the law I want you to think about with me today. Whenever the Holy Spirit is present, it's just a law. Whenever the Holy Spirit is present, seeking 
to carry out God's kingdom work through us, evil is also present, seeking to disrupt and reverse this work. I mean, it's just just a a simple law. Think of it this way, where God is present, evil is near. That's That's not a guess. That's not a hypothesis. That's a guaranteed law, which is why I'm, I'm excited to dig in to our topic today. In today's op- episode, I really want to talk about this spiritual law, because I think it impacts every one of us. Uh, the great English theologian C.S. Lewis expressed it this way. He suggested that as long as Christians go about following Jesus in a superficial way, evil remains at rest. Yeah, there's no need for evil to engage, but... Lewis suggested that when Christians act in faith in a way that releases our lives into God's hands, evil always seeks to disrupt. I want to talk about what that looks like. In in the unseen world of the spirit and, and of fallen angels, we call them demons, what's going on in our lives as the Holy Spirit seeks to work through us? I think most of us would agree it actually was C.S. Lewis who first popularized the unseen world of fallen angels or demons. Uh, back in his 1942 book, The Screwtape Letters, by the way, if you haven't read these, they're a must read. I mean, to this day, they remain one of the most well-written, thought-provoking books of the unseen world ever produced. In fact, one of my hopes is that Netflix, who acquired the rights to Lewis's book in 2018, might do something to help articulate these into the general public. Um, God knows that the company has produced an astounding volume, Netflix has, of offensive material. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be helpful to produce something of actual value? So that, so that said, I believe that what, what's made screw tape letters so successful is actually the intimate way in which they help us imagine what the very real spiritual realm that surrounds us every day looks like. I think, I think most of us cognitively know, as we read the, the scriptures, that there is a spiritual realm around us, but what does it look like? In the book, uh, of course, Lewis adopts three primary characters. There's a senior demon named Screwtape, a junior demon named Wormwood, uh, which, which comes from the book of Revelation. And then there's the patient, who is the human subject of the book. So as you, as you progress through the book, Lewis positions uh, us to hear or listen in on conversations going on between the senior demon, Screwtape, and the junior demon, Wormwood. Um, here's what I'm going to promise you. I promise you that if you read the book, it will literally change the way you walk out of the door of your house every morning. It will challenge you. It will interrogate the way you see yourself and the world around you. Why? Because it reminds us that we're all too easily swept into thinking that the empirical world around us, the seen world, is all there is. And it's not. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. I've, I've always said it this way. If for just five short seconds, we could turn on a light switch that would allow you and I to see the world of angels, both those of God, his Sabbath army, as well as fallen angels. If we could see them for five seconds, we would forever be changed. Just a glimpse, a physical glimpse of that unseen world would bring all of us, I I believe, to our knees. But we don't see it. We don't think about it. Oh, we may give um, value to his existence, but we open the doors of our homes and we rush out into the world most days. We, we don't even think about the fact that there is a law 
at work. Here it is again. When you and I are brought by the Holy Spirit to a place in our lives where we put our lives into God's hands for his use and the kingdom that he's building, hell will do everything possible to disrupt what God is seeking to do. That is a law. I've loved the way that St. Paul has expressed this in Ephesians six twelve. Just remember these words with me. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And I think that's what we're seeing as we turn back to Daniel chapter 6. Come, come back with me. Let's step into the moment and begin with what we see on the surface of things. Cyrus, the king of Persia, has begun the process of setting up his new government over former Babylonia, now Persia. Now, most expect that he's going to name into power many of his closest, most trusted wingmen. It would make, it would make sense. In fact, most of, of those close to Cyrus would want to be placed into position as rulers over this newly conquered province. Not only would this position uh, a person for future and further political advances, but it would benefit them fiscally. They, they wanted the position. So let's imagine for a moment, for a moment that you're part of Cyrus's inner circle. There's talk kind of going around uh, who's going to be appointed into the position. Uh, remember, there's 121 positions akin to mayoral offices that are up for grab. And additionally, three spots open for what would be the equivalent of governorships. Then there's one who would benefit most, namely the individual who would, in essence, govern the governors. To, to receive that appointment would be, as we would say in the West, money in the bank. So who's going to be appointed? That, that's the substance of talks going on, so to speak, around the water coolers of that day. So then it happens. Uh, the assignment is made and the name Daniel emerges. Daniel? I mean, isn't that a, a Hebrew name? Is Cyrus really thinking about putting a Hebrew slave into the position of governor of governors? That can't, that can't be right. That doesn't make sense. It's insane. How, how do you know he won't stab you in the back? How do you know anything about this guy? Who is he? So listen, within hours of the announcement, work begins on discovering who in the world Daniel is. Not, not for the purpose of celebrating his appointment, no. Work begins on trying to turn up as much dirt as possible in order to disrupt what most would agree would be a disastrous decision on the part of King Cyrus. You don't entrust your kingdom to an unknown, or do you? I love the way our scripture lays this out. I'm going to ask you to listen to these words, and Lord, we're just going to pray that you give us some, some guidance as we hear these words. This is verse uh, 4. I want to just read it to you. It reads as follows, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. I'm just stopping there. You can see it, right? On the surface, there is, at the very moment, the king makes a decision to instate Daniel into this political position, a movement made to disrupt. So let me ask the question, why? On the surface, that is, at 
an observable circumstantial level. All this is is politics and money. And that's how a historian, apart from any faith or the ability to see underneath the surface, that's how they would describe what's happening here. But is there more than meets the eye? Let me ask you this. Underneath the surface, at a spiritual level, what's happening in this moment of history? This is where I believe things get a bit interesting. When you're reading the book of Daniel, never forget that this is a book, like, like all books of the Bible, that is directly connected to Jesus Christ. And that's the story of the Bible. When you, when you go back into the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, and you think about what's happening, Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. Now, I've always said that the fall into sin, it wasn't a surprise to God. It, it wasn't. From before the moment that he actually created the world, God knew Adam and Eve would fall. And guess what? He had a plan. So when you turn to Genesis 3 and you read about the fall into sin, what you see is God's plan. Almost immediately after the fall, who appears in the garden? God. And what does he bring? A promise. Genesis 3.15 represents what most theologians call the first messianic promise. The promise that points to Jesus. And in it, God says what? I will bring into this world a seed that is a child who will crush the head of the enemy. That would be Satan. Do you know that Satan listened to God speak those words in that garden? He heard it. He knew there would come a day when a child would be born that would crush his head. But when and where? He, he didn't know. He didn't know. But he vowed to himself to do everything he could to disrupt that child from ever being born. Now, fast forward to this moment in Daniel's life, 539 BC. Do you know what that means? We believe Jesus was born approximately 3 BC. So we're about 536 years prior to his birth, which actually means we're rapidly approaching it from a cosmic perspective. What the book of Daniel as a whole is doing is, is guess what? It's pointing us toward this moment in time when Jesus will be born. There's an unfolding of history going on at the hand of God that will lead up to Jesus's birth and the crushing of the enemy's head. Now, don't miss this. Both the capture of Jerusalem by Babylon and now the defeat of Babylon by Persia, it's all part of God's master plan. And who's trying to disrupt the plan? The enemy. I want, I want to say this clearly. What we are witnessing here is a spiritual law. It is exactly what Paul's talking about when he says, do you not know that your battle, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in dark places. He's talking about demons and most of all the father of demons, Lucifer. The spiritual law is whenever God is present, seeking to unfold his kingdom purposes, evil will be present. Evil will always be present, attempting to disrupt what God desires. So in this story, what's happening in the unseen world is exposed in the viewable and circumstantial world. But, but most of the people on the world stage only see the superficial. They miss completely what God is doing. Were these Persian men, in a sense, just looking out for themselves? Yeah, they were. But in another sense, they're carrying out at a deeper level a plan that God desired to use for his good. All of which raises some questions for us today. And I, I want to leave you with these questions. The question one is this. Are there places in your life where you sense that there is a spiritual battle going on? Where fallen angels, demons, may be seeking to disrupt what God 
is trying to do through you. If I've learned anything about our enemy, it's how good he is at getting in God's way. He'll use almost anything to put distance between us and our calling. Here's what I know. Some of you listening to this podcast, you're in a battle right now. And your battle is not with flesh and blood. It is with powers of darkness. It's with fallen angels. He will use anything to put distance between you and the one who made you for himself. He'll use relationships, criticism, depression, personal problems, inadequacies, anything. What I'm asking you is, is this happening right now in your life? Can you sense that there's more than a flesh and blood battle going on to disrupt you? Second question is about timing. Have you noticed that the spiritual battles in life are often connected from a timing perspective to those times when we are led to commit ourselves to something God's placed in front of us? I have discovered that almost, almost every time without fail in my life. The moment I act on a conviction that God births in me, trouble follows. I never know what the trouble is going to look like. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's fiscal. Most of the time, it feels like it's just out of the blue or coincidental. But I've lived way too long to believe in coincidences. If you've recently been led to a place of spiritual conviction, I want you to stop and notice something. How is that conviction being challenged? I I don't believe in coincidences. I know that there's a spiritual force at work. Finally, what's the right posture to take as we become aware? The fact that we're we're in a spiritual battle much larger than what our eyes are able to observe. Um, I just want to use two words here. The words are fear and confidence. And yes, they are oppositional. But I'm, I'm a big believer that we should not fear our spiritual enemy. The, the Bible says fear God, and I do. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But we have no reason to fear our enemy. You know, you know why? Because he's both defeated and and chained. He's limited by God in our lives. Our enemy has the right to tempt us, but he cannot cause us to do anything. He can oppress us, that is, compress in hard upon us, but he cannot possess us, not anyone who belongs to Jesus and has the Holy Spirit living in them. In fact, the Bible says greater is the one living in you than the one living in the world. So what posture do we take? I believe first we we assume a position, our posture of awareness. As, as much as you are aware of what's happening with your body, listen to the Spirit as He talks to you. Know when you're under spiritual attack. Secondly, assume a posture that's formed through rhythms. And I, I'm big on this. Our God is a God of rhythms. He gives them to us, spiritual rhythms that He uses to shape us. When a person comes to me and says, oh, I feel like I'm, my family's under spiritual attack. One of the first things I ask is, what's happening with your rhythms? What are your word rhythms? What are your prayer rhythms? What are your worship rhythms? I can almost guarantee you, if any of those are off, it's not good. Third, assume a posture of release. I think one of the most enlightening moments of my seminary career occurred through an association with a professor who had experience with exorcisms. And I've always been fascinated by exorcisms. Uh, he had actually had experience with the exorcism that gave rise to the script that became the 1976 movie, The Exorcist. Of course, the real event was a lot different than the movie. Anyway, I'll never forget the day that a number of us asked the professor about becoming involved in an exorcism. And his body froze. 
I'll never forget him turning to us with passion, exhorting us to never seek to become involved in an exorcism without a total release of ourselves to the power of God. And never, he said, ever battle a demon in your own strength. To this day, I'm thankful for those words. They've served me well in the trenches, and so I share them with you. Lastly, don't be afraid to assume a posture of victory. You know who did this well? Luther, Martin Luther, the monk. Luther reports that he often battled demons early in the morning hours. And one of the things he always did was to address them. They're fallen angels. Out loud, in the name of Jesus, he would literally remind them that they were defeated and under God's authority, he would call upon them to leave his presence. I've adopted that practice and believe in it. Well, that's it for the day. I, I thank you for joining me uh, for this podcast. I pray that it's a blessing to you. If you find it helpful, do me a favor. Find someone to pass this on to. And until next time, have a God-sized week.